0: Welcome to Dear Dio, your resource for honest advice and real authenticity for your journey from life from a pre-med to residency. I'm your host, Michael Garrison, fourth-year osteopathic medical student, and today I'm happy to have Nicholas Breyer, current medical student and someone who recently matched into otolaryngology or ENT residency. So just going to thank Nick for being here. Um, For a little bit of background, Nick was one of my very first med school friends Our med school does this day before classes start with a bunch of activities to choose from, and we actually did them all. So there was a hike, a river float, a chicken wing festival, and a movie night, arguably one of the longest days ever. But that's the day that I met all of my future best friends. So it's a very sentimental day for me. And um, I've said this before, and I'll say it again, I would not have been as successful in medical school if it weren't for these amazing humans, including Nick. So I hope everyone listening appreciates this conversation and maybe learns a little bit from it. So Nicholas, do you mind telling the audience a little bit about yourself?
1: Of course. Well, thank you for having me. I think you need a shout out as well. Uh, Most of us over here goofing off our fourth year and you're putting in the time to put together a podcast to help people. (laughs) Props to you. About myself, let's see. I'm from Toledo, Ohio, small town outside of it. And I did all my undergraduate, graduate education, Tennessee. So I went to University of Tennessee undergrad. Uh, I did a master's at Lipscomb University. That got me a job at Vanderbilt during research for about a year and a half. And then I started med school at LMU DCOM. I am sort of a MCAT recovery student in a way and I uh, didn't get accepted to med school the first time. Did the master's, did the research, did a whole lot of community service. Found my way, you know, the long route. I'm pretty prideful of that and it's made me a better candidate for it.
0: Nice. I think that that, that journey is super relatable. I can relate and I'm sure that a lot of people listening can. So just getting straight into it, going through medical school, we were both gunners in didactics, but you always seem so dedicated. I always saw your car, there first thing, showing up at DCOM, you always got that first spot. So what was your day-to-day study routine like in medical school and how did you keep up the momentum?
1: Oh yeah, I remember those days. There are two things I know about myself. It's one, I don't focus very well and I focus better in the morning. So uh, I always started early. So it was a lot of times it was like 6 or 6.30. It was as soon as I could get out of bed and get to the library. Those are my peak hours. was like that 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. sort of window. And then from there, going into lectures and stuff. And then from there, you know, for me, my strategy going into classes, I tried to see all the material that we were covering that day three times. I started my day always with doing the Anki. That's keeping up material from the previous day. And then I would add in cards from a Pathoma video or something prepping the lecture for that actual day. Uh, then I would always go to lectures live, or for us, a lot of it was on Blackboard Zoom-type lectures online. And so I would go through the lecture, I would take a break, work out, and then come back and do all my Anki cards for that new material that we just saw, and uh, any additional Anki cards relating to board studying. So that was just my general breakdown. And that way I could see the prep material before the lecture, the lecture itself, and then a third time seeing it on the Anki and the Anki was key for me as something that we sort of related to throughout med school.
0: Definitely. If, if we had Anki for MCAT, it would have been game over. (laughs) So how did you keep up your momentum? Like, I feel like I would have, I definitely would have burned myself out if I was waking up at 6am every day and you just, you, you just feel like that was the time for you to really get things done.
1: You know, it was, it's a good question. Uh, momentum for me came sort of in a lot of different ways. You know, one was discipline for me. You know, I knew I had like one shot at this and I had a lot of people that, you know, I wanted to prove to them that I could do, you know, a lot of my motivation came from my family and they were always telling everybody that they met that they had a doctor in the family. So there was like some pressure. I want to make them proud. I didn't want to be that student who didn't make it. You know, I had a pretty intense mentor. He told me, Hey, I'm going to write you the strongest recommendation that he, and it's going to have my name on it and I need you to know that when you get there you can't just be the slacker student uh, you need to be the best and you know you need to carry this reputation with you and so that really stuck with me as well so I had a lot of tips on my shoulder pushing me and then from there a lot of it was just sort of discipline once I got into the routine you know I got rid of all of my distractions so it was you know wake up Anki, lecture, workout, Anki again. And then I had an hour to, at the end of the day, when my brain was fried, where I could, you know, watch Netflix or something if I needed to.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think that, like, you and me are very similar in that way that we both thrive on routine. And so my routine looked very similar. I just woke up maybe two hours later than you did. Um, So, you know, I'm sure that you've been asked this question so many times by now all of the interviews that you've been through. But why did you pick ENT? And when did you figure that out?
1: This was a good question. And you will get asked this a million times in your interviews. So I'll give you the more casual answer. It really started, I was, uh, I knew I wanted to do surgery. I had mentors a year above me in surgery and shadowed with a lot of physicians before med school who definitely pushed me that way. So I had that mentality going in. And then I had a uh, Friend of mine asked me, you know, where I was going into, and I said, you know, general surgery I'm looking at. And he said, dude, you should do ENT. You get to de- operate, you get to do clinic, you know, you get a way better lifestyle, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, really? ENT? I didn't know anything about it. The more I researched, the more I looked into it. And when it comes down to it, ENT is like the most amazing specialty in the world. You get diversity of patients. So you see, you know, your children for ear tubes, tonsils, et cetera you get your patients uh, that are elderly for hearing loss and then you get all those patients in between your thyroids that need taken out your hoarse voice complaints your sinus surgery septoplasties and all this comes with like a very half clinic half or type lifestyle so you know a typical ENT i think does one or two days in clinic one or two days in the OR and a the third day is sort of 50/50 either way so it had a really good lifestyle the call for an ENT is not horrible. You get called in the middle of the night. Uh, you always have that emergent airway or tonsil bleed or something that will get you a little stressed in the middle of the night. But other than that, a lot of times it's nosebleeds or things like that in the ED. So it's really not that bad. And that really appealed to me. It seemed like a specialty that I could do and have you know, a life, a family at some point as well. It gave me the opportunity to have that OR and the clinic and the diversity of patients.
0: Definitely. I think that that's something that not a lot of people think about when they go into med school. You know, you think, oh, I'm going to be young forever. (laughs) Uh, You know, I can do gen surge. I can, you know, and still have a family. And then when you really get exposed to it and stuff, and I mean, a lot of people do do surgery and still have families, but it's like, what do you, how do you see your life in the future? And so I love that you were able to find something that really balanced everything that you want. Um, But when did you figure that out? So,
1: I think I figured it out mostly during my third year rotation. I did a general surgery for four weeks and then I did an ENT right after it. And I loved my general surgery rotation. I worked 80, 100 hour weeks, you know, all through the weekends. It was crazy. It was brutal, but I was having so much fun. I loved operating. Everything was. Awesome. Everything was like an emergent situation. We were always busy. And that really appealed to me. And it was a lot of fun. But then I did ENT right after that. And, you know, it was sort of a come to moment. I was like, man, I'm operating, but I'm also seeing some clinic. My preceptor is, you know, he's playing golf on the weekend and he has three kids. There's just this total night and day difference between the personality of my ENT uh, position I rotated with and the general surgeons who, you know, were all sort of just. You no know, maybe a little bit burnout and uh, telling me how much it, you know toll it took uh, being a general surgeon with their family and everything. So for me that that's what it came down to. and from then on, it was hundred percent ENT.
0: And I'm sure that this match season has been a heck of a year for you. I know it's been a heck of a year for me, so maybe I'm just projecting that on you. Um, but I know when you told me in third year that you were gonna pack up your apartment and travel on auditions all year, I was absolutely shook. So how many auditions did you end up doing and did you have any strategy going into the audition season?
1: Yeah, it was a real fun fourth year. I called it my world tour. It was probably probably eight to 10 audition rotations. ENT is like two weeks, so it's a four-week rotation split in two for a lot of them. It's probably more closer to 10 audition rotations and then caught up on my electives and other things sort of the last three months here. And then, so strategy-wise for ENT, it's very interesting. ENT specialty, they only take one or two spots, especially in the deal world. So to go about applying for programs, you kind of have to cast a broad net. Even if you do have a really good audition rotation, etc., you know, you could always lose the spot, the one spot, to you know somebody who did research there or does undergrad, you know, across the street or had been connected with somebody in the program, you know, you don't have that uh, leeway, that wiggle room. So for me, it was about casting a very broad net, uh, getting as many audition rotations as I possibly could and uh, trying to get my face out there as much as possible. And then as far as what audition rotations I chose to go to, uh, I'm from Toledo, Ohio. So when I looked at all the programs for ENT, I know there are There are five or six programs in Detroit for DOENT. There's a program in Youngstown. There's a program in Cuyahoga Falls near Cleveland area. Uh, There's a program in Columbus. And then outside of that, your main programs are, I think there's one in Missouri. There's PCOM in Pennsylvania. And then there's one in Oklahoma, I believe.
0: Just like a quick question um, for people who who might not understand. the Saying that like a program is DO, by that you... I think I, let me know if I'm saying this wrong, but that it's DO friendly and it's like historically taken DOs, um, because, you know, since the merger, everything has been combined and, but some programs have kept that historically DO track record.
1: Yeah. It's somewhat of a gray area. So you're right in that, uh, some of these programs are strictly DOs. Uh, they stick to the historically DO title. Uh, they only take DOs. The other programs that aren't that don't carry that title are programs that say yes, we take MDs and DOs, but then you look at the history, and they really, they really only, still only take DOs.
0: And that can be said for MD programs as well. You know, like MD. A lot of MD programs say like, oh yeah, you can apply as a DO, and then like they've never had a DO ever. So. It can go both ways, but sorry, so continue.
1: No, no, you hit the nail on the head. And it's not to say that you can't be the first DO to break the, an MD program or vice versa, but you sort of, you know, it becomes an, it's a numbers game. It's 100% a numbers game for me. They only take one or two students. I need to focus on ones that take only one or two DO. Oh,
0: wait a second. We just have to wait a second. I didn't realize that when we were going to record, that you would be like in New York City.
1: Skill <laughs> is not only like this.
0: <laughs> no worries so what were what were you saying about like you have to apply to one or two we can start from there
1: yeah no so I was saying it's a numbers game uh, if they only take one or two spots uh, a program and there's only you know a finite number of do programs it just becomes a matter of you need to apply to all of these programs and just figure out how to get an audition at them and so for me some people you know, I had the opportunity to, you know, wait a little bit longer for scheduling the auditions, et cetera. But for me, it became a matter of, you know, I need to be the first name on that list. I need to be the first name for this audition rotation. So for me, it became a matter of shotgun blasting emails out, you know, starting January 1st, starting February 1st, getting my name out there and just saying, hey... My name is so-and-so. I'm interested in your program. I would love to know if you'd take students for auditions. How can I go about applying? This very simple emails like that to the coordinator. And I sent that to everybody all over the country. And then from there, emails came back. And as fast as you could, you applied to uh, an audition rotation. And with scheduling, you know, sometimes you have the I want to how do I say it you have the like uh, the wiggle room to schedule like rotations that are all in Detroit do those all in one month and then rotations all in Ohio do all, all those in one month and quite have that opportunity if they said yes I said yes book me this date so I ended up not coordinating super well and that I was in Detroit that was in Youngstown I was back in Detroit I was in Toledo I was back in Detroit I was in Columbus you know it came a lot of miles
0: Definitely, and it sounds like you did because all of those auditions paid off well. You had what is it, thirty-five interviews total?
1: I did. Those were not all ENT interviews. I did dual apply. I applied general surgery as a backup. Uh, ENT was always the priority, um, but you know, even given what I may have had, you know, a decent shot at an ENT spot you know, looking at a third year, I just know I needed to have a backup. I knew I needed to have something, a plan B and a plan C. So for me, plan A was always ENT, set up those auditions. Plan B was general surgery uh, and possibly specializing after that. And then plan C, if I did, made it through all those interviews and ended up in SOAP, uh, was going to go into internal medicine and hopefully find a way to specialize or, you know, reapply to that and see where I'm at in my life.
0: Definitely. That's a good plan. And it's good to have an an A, B, and a C because I think that especially this match season taught all of us that it's unpredictable. You know, there were 500 unmatched positions in surgery. There were over 500 in in emergency medicine. So, um, you know, the match can always come out of the woodwork and uh, surprise you. So it's obvious that you put a ton of work in during fourth year. Is there anything particular that you were looking for in a residency program and how you went about knowing that you wanted to audition at one versus another?
1: Definitely. So this is a question that also come up in every interview you ever have, as you know. Uh, but for me, the, the big things in a surgical specialty such as ENT is caseload. For me, it was imperative that I was getting the maximum amount of reps that I could possibly get because at the end of your five years, Uh, no matter what specialty, but especially as a surgeon, you're going to go out into the world and there's nobody, nobody's going to be holding your hand. And you need to have seen and know every surgery, you know, through muscle memory, know every variant, know every complication that can occur. And the only way you can really get that experience and have that confidence later in uh, life as an attending is to have those case numbers. And then from there, you know, second and third for me, priorities are probably tied, but it became like, fact of mentorship and teaching. There's a lot of ground to cover in EMT. Uh, you have to be a master clinician and then you have to be a master surgeon. So you need to you be well armed in both areas. And so for me, it became a matter of you know, how can I learn best? And I, I respond well to strong mentorship and strong leaders in the program. So I made sure I picked a program on my rank list that had strong program director or strong residents or fellows there that would teach me. And then number three, you should always consider your fit and bond with the residents. You know, I think the place I matched, uh, Western Reserve, I had the best fit of any program, a big weightlifter and golfer, and I uh, bonded super well with the program director about those things, and uh, as well as the residents. You know, we joked about weightlifting even in the interviews. Honestly, I sat down and was like, I see myself best with these people than anywhere else in the country.
0: Yeah, and it. you know what's so funny to me is that you had to have gotten that audition experience in order to know all of that information, right? Like you wouldn't know that you really had that connection with those people unless you did the audition. And that's another reason why auditions are just so important because if it weren't for that audition, you would be matching somewhere that maybe you'd never set foot in, which is really, really scary. Um, And I feel like I had the same kind of journey where I was between two programs And I just had to think about where am I going to, who did I bond better with? What kind of people do you want to be around? And that's important because like you said, ENT is a five-year residency for for neurology. It's four years. Like That's a big chunk of your life uh, to be picking blindly, really, without an audition.
1: Yeah, I can't can't emphasize the audition rotations enough. Uh, It really makes a huge difference. You know, in an interview... Etc. I did so many interviews. You know, you get your basic impression, but I always told them that, you know, I get more from the audition rotation I did with you guys and seeing, you know, how well you guys interact, you know, outside of the OR or in the clinic. You know, how well do you guys interact with nurses? Do you have a good reputation, etc. You pick up so many little things that are just not spoken necessarily, but seen.
0: Yeah. And I like when I was on my auditions, you can really pick up on little tiny, you know, nitpicky things. You can really see whether or not the residents are hanging out with one another because they'll be talking about it in their corners, you know. But then when you're on a Zoom interview and you ask them, oh, do you guys hang out? They can easily lie and say yes, or that it might not be a lie and they'll say yes. But then you can ask them, when was the last time? What did you do? was it did it have to be an organized activity or do you guys just do it on your own accord things like that and when i was at my program during my audition i got to see like no they just hang out it doesn't have to be an organized type of thing they just hang out they go over to their faculty's houses the faculty throw parties for the for the residents all the time at their own homes it was just it felt like a family and as much as a program can tell you via Zoom that they are a family, seeing it in person and witnessing it is completely different.
1: 100%. And for me, it was uh, a matter of fit. It became a matter of these guys joke with each other. You know, that's really what I wanted to know. You know, is there a sense of humor amongst everybody? You definitely, I definitely saw that at some programs more than the other.
0: So you obviously must have been a super competitive candidate. And I mean that like in the best way because you really seriously put in the work, Nick. Um, And I know that you took step two in addition to level two, but what kind of scores did you need or did you hear about needing in order to be competitive for ENT?
1: It's a really good question. And even to this day, I don't know exactly how competitive of a candidate I actually am or was. Uh, For me, I was very nervous about this. I asked a lot of mentors. A uh, guy ahead of me matched in the ENT, and he was super helpful um, along the way. And then I talked to another mentor who was in practice already at ENT, and I was constantly asking her. I was like, hey, these are my scores. Am I competitive? Do I even have a chance? So for ENT, I think the baseline score uh, on the complex side is about 600, and I think on the, the uh, Step side is about 235. With everything, though, those are just to get you in the doors. I don't think if you score uh, 700 or 800 that you're necessarily ranked better. From there, you need to carry yourself. The rest of my application, I think the strong parts included my research that I did at Vanderbilt. I had two publications, and I think the prestige just from that job itself carried a lot of weight. Even though my research was not in ENT, it was in... Autonomic dysfunction I just I had a lot of hands-on work in the clinical trial area And so I think that just stood out and then I think some of the other things that Really make for a good applicant especially in surgery. I always harped on it in my interviews was that I brought a sense of maturity or Leadership type qualities to a program surgeons in general are going to be Asked upon to do a whole lot of things they're going to be put through You know numerous stress even ENTs who may have a better lifestyle You know, the residency is equally hard all the same. And so they want somebody who has maturity, has been through some adversity, has had some, you know, experience in leadership. And so for me, I fell back a lot of uh, my training in the fire department that I did through medical school. And then, you know, I had some personal struggles that I've overcome with family members, losing family members throughout my medical school journey. And so I fell back on that to sort of to show I have the emotional maturity and the leadership both there.
0: Yeah, I think that you summed up that perfectly. I think that you alluded to this, but you can get an 800 on level two and still not match because you are just not a good fit for their program. Um, Whether that's saying something about your character or not, it doesn't matter. It's just whether whether or not you're a good fit. And so just being your most authentic self and really reflecting on the characters and traits that you have that have gotten you to this point was huge for me during third year so that I could write a solid personal statement and so that I could carry myself in a way that I could I could show to residency programs that just like you said, like I I am mature, I am a leader, I am X, Y, and Z. These are all the reasons why you should take me, not just because I got an, an 800. I did not get an 800, but just because <laughs> I got an 800 on level two, it's, it's the person that they're looking for. And so uh, I think that you said that really, really well. And so ENT, based on those scores that you were talking about, uh, super competitive, but that's whether you're an MD or a DO, it sounds like ENT can be competitive as an applicant. So were you ever discouraged from applying to a competitive specialty as a DO applicant?
1: Yeah, no, you're right. Um As far as discouraged, it's just intimidating when you think about it. It's like you read the qualifications for a lot of these programs, you know, you get your spreadsheet, etc. And you're looking at it and you're like, oh, I meet the criteria, although, you know, just barely. And, you know, you start questioning yourself if you can do it or not. For me, when I look back on it, I just want to say that whether I ended up matching ENT or not, you know, I just want to say I took the shots. You know, I had put in all of my undergrad. I did two gap years. I'm whatever, however much in debt, it's a lot. You know, I'm just going to shoot my shot and uh, see where it ends up. So don't, you'll be a little bit discouraged. You'll be intimidated at times, but uh, just remember, you know, this is your your one chance to really give it all you have. And and if I look back to say, Hey, I did everything I could to get into, you know, a very competitive specialty, and wherever I end up, I'll be happy.
0: Yeah, that's a great outlook, and that was something that I had to constantly remind myself of, too. You know, we, I think that we as medical students put a lot of pressure on ourselves to do well because, you know, we've worked our butts off for time since we were, you know, in high school, and if if it doesn't pan out, then, like, then what? Uh, but just knowing that you put everything into it is just a really great outlook to have, you know, no regrets. This is this is the predicament that I'm in, whether that's something that you wanted or something that maybe you didn't want. But knowing that, like, it couldn't have changed anything, even if you really wanted to. Wanted
1: to. Just remember there was a time in your life where, you know, especially me, I never thought I would make it to med school, especially during all those gap years. Uh, So to even have the opportunity to, you know, apply to such a competitive specialty, I just got to remember that it's a blessing.
0: Yeah. So what did, I know that this isn't on our original plan to talk about, but you brought it up. So what did you do during your gap years? Uh, I know that you had some some pretty crazy times. You had a couple crazy jobs. You want to talk about that a little bit?
1: sure. Sure. Let's see. I lived in Nashville for two years and uh, during which time I was getting my master's degree. Uh, That was all taught at night. And so during the day I applied to be a teaching assistant for diversity and ecology. So I was a teaching assistant during most of the morning and afternoon. And then I was a graduate student at night. And then from there I needed to make ends meet rent wise with Nashville. So I started working as a valet on the weekends and uh That paid very well, actually, but it was a very fun job. You run a lot, but you get get paid all in tips. And so it was very, it was very rewarding at times. It definitely covered expenses. And then from there, you know, I did finish my master's and I was in Nashville and I still had that sort of awkward time where you had applied for medical school, but you still had like a year till you figured out if you even were accepted or not. And so at that time, that's when I started the position at Berneville as a research assistant. And then from there, there was like a complication with uh, the ballet job at one point. I wasn't quite getting enough hours. So then I picked up a third job, driving Lyft. Anyway, I just was trying to stay as busy as possible. You know, I worked five days a week at Vanderbilt. And then I did ballet on the weekends and Lyft in between if it wasn't covering everything. But I had a lot of fun in Nashville.
0: Yeah, I love, I love the Lyft stories.
1: <laughs> it's so funny. You think those things aren't that important. Um, but I was asked that probably in 60% of my interviews, I was asked about a valet story or a lift story or, you know, something, what was it like living in Nashville?
0: I mean, I had a very similar experience during my interviews where like, I was asked about a job that I held during undergrad as a front desk receptionist. And they will ask you straight up like, oh, that's, that's fun. Like, what's your craziest story? Like, tell me. Tell me about it. And you have, to, you have to be willing to, you know, be caught off guard with those questions. Were there any other wild or unexpected questions that you got during interview trail?
1: I have to look back and uh, reflect on all of them. I wish I would have wrote them down. I would have been uh, smart on my part. But I felt like I was asked every question at some point. The funnest interview I ever had, uh, they actually put you in a group with four or five other applicants and you went through a team building exercise. So they gave you one of those scenarios like you're on, a, you're on an island or something and you get 20 items, you know, rank the items from 1 to 20. So you do it individually and then you collaborate with the group and then the, the mediator comes in and then you do it with him. He tells you what's good or bad. He was a very cool guy. Uh, it was a very cool activity because he was telling us like, you know, telling different applicants like, oh, I liked how you ask these questions about these items. That means you're inquisitive and you admit when you don't really know what an item is. Like one of the items was like a sextant. I have no idea what a sextant is. I was like, dude, what's a sextant? What is that? It's like a navigational tool that takes like a lot of skill and mastery through like the light or the stars or something. So I ranked it very low. And the group agreed. And they're like, yeah, and it ended up being like the right answer. But there's a lot of weird things like that that can come <laughs> in. That was a general surgery interview.
0: They like straight up psychoanalyzed you during this interview. hundred percent. I've heard of them doing that for psychiatry interviews, legitimate, straight up Myers-Briggs or questionnaires. But from a Gen Surge, uh interview, that's kind of surprising.
1: It was cool. I actually liked the guy a lot. That was like one of my more uh, memorable, one of my favorite interviews. And then there's a whole like catalog of uh, all the mistakes I've made in interviews. The stories go on and on. I've like missed and heard questions. I've had internet go out and power go out multiple times it just goes on and on but you end up getting pretty good at it after a while
0: yeah during my last interview the the connection just completely left and then so then they call you like if your internet goes out they'll they'll try to call you and I didn't have any cell service inside the apartment that I was in and so I'm like I have my head out the window (laughs) of my friend's apartment because i was on and away obviously so i have my like head out the window on my phone with the program director and they're just like talking i'm like yep yep nothing to see here like everything's great (laughs) don't know what happened that's so weird uh so that ended up being one of the one of my actually like my better interviews but yeah (laughs) i actually
1: uh uh, it happened to me twice, and what saved me was I upgraded my phone this year, and I could do the hotspot thing off my phone, and I was able to get it up and running in less than like a minute or two.
0: So, like, pro tip for anyone listening: before starting residency interviews, make sure you upgrade your phone to having some type of hotspot. I, I mean, I, I discontinued that because I cannot be bothered to pay an extra ten dollars a month. Um, but the more you learn, you know, that could have saved me. And so, um, if you could go back and give yourself a piece of advice as a medical student, what would you say? Anything that you would have changed?
1: It sounds a lot like a, an interview question in a way, but no. If I could go back and tell myself as a medical student, I would just say to keep your perspective on life and you know why you're doing it. It sounds very cliche, but for me, a lot of my motivation came from you know my family's sort of medical journey that has been with me, you know, for, since middle school even, uh, with different things. And so that's, it's always sort of been at the heart of why I got into medicine, why I wanna do what I do, because, you know, it's a life decision, it's not a career choice. And that's important to keep in mind. Always fall back on why you're doing it. And remember the times that like, you never thought you would make it to meds, you know, you never thought you would have a shot at going into surgery.
0: That's that's really great advice. And just um question that I forgot to ask, that I think a lot of people could benefit from is how do you do well on auditions, like especially surgical auditions? Is there certain things that you need to make sure that you're doing?
1: Gosh, it's a hard topic to cover briefly, but...
0: No, no, take your time. Take your time.
1: I hope there's an episode coming just to audition rotations. because I feel like it's such a fine art. So audition rotations, they've come and a lot of different variations. Some give you very specific details in the schedule, who to contact, where to be and when, what procedures are going on. And so, you know, those aren't that hard to prepare for. You know, as a surgery, um, as a surgery auditioner, you should always know the patient history. You should know the indications for the procedure being done. You should know the contraindications. You should know the complications that can arise and you should know, you know, as much anatomy as you possibly can. If you can do those things in the OR, you're going to at least cover your grounds. And then from there, it's just a matter of, you know, can you move appropriately? Do you have sterile technique, et cetera? Other than that, with auditions, um, you will get programs that uh, do not give you any of that whatsoever. And you just sort of have to figure it out. So keeping in mind that like, for me, one of the programs, they just gave me uh, a time to show up at the hospital. I didn't get a location. I didn't get who to meet. I looked up the residents, so I kind of knew who was working. But for that one, you know, I ended up showing up to the hospital. I think they wanted me to be at six. I showed up at five. I had to find my way to HR to get my badge. I found my badge. And then from there, I had them direct me to the surgical board uh, in the OR. And then from there, I navigated to the locker room to change into scrubs. And then from there, into the OR. But, you know, the residents are so busy that, you know, you could call them, email them, etc. Sometimes they don't want to get bogged down with helping students or etc. You won't hear anything. And so it ended up working out well because they were like, wow, this guy took initiative. He found his own way here.
0: It's almost like a test.
1: Yeah, I felt like it was at some point. I was like, this has got to be a test.
0: Like, so the the problem with that, that I would run into... Because I would be like, okay, this is either a test or or this tells me something about their program or their program coordinator or something. Like, this tells me that they're not super organized. And so that would almost be – either way, I think that that would be a red flag for me um, because either they're super into testing me, which honestly, like, I, I'm choosing to be here, and two, like – Y'all need to tell me where to be and when and, you know, and you don't even realize that. So like for me, for my first rotation, it was kind of like that. And so I was prepared for all of my auditions to be like, just figure it out, be at the hospital. No one's going to tell you what room or anything. And then after that rotation, I had two where they were so organized. They told me where I needed to be to pick up my badge, what parking lot I could use um, what room to go into and in what floor of the hospital it's in and I was like well wow, that that actually like was a lot more pleasant this time around maybe I should reflect on this so even picking up on the little things can be really important
1: no you're 100% right and it's such a line the ride on an audition rotation between do you want to be the annoying student who asks a lot of questions or do you want to be the self-driven student but you also don't want to be that student who you know thinks they're already a resident and is trying to like run the OR so it's like this constant balance at first I stressed out about it a lot I was like am I asking too many questions am I not asking enough questions Uh, but eventually I don't know you find you find out how to read people you find out how to mellow out a little bit by the end of it, by the time my last couple of audition rotations, it was more just like hanging out. You know, I didn't stress about asking questions or trying to show that I knew the anatomy or anything. It was more just like, how can I actually help this resident? You know, if we were going to down to drain a peritonsular abscess or something, you know, I would go down ahead of them and get the history, grab the kit, grab gloves, grab saline, et cetera, things you would need. Any way you made their day a little bit easier. You know, I found out you know, makes you stand out much more.
0: And that's really the biggest way to impress. I agree a thousand percent. If you want to impress on a a rotation, you don't need to know the answer to every possible question that they can throw at you. You don't need to know every anatomical structure. You just need to make the people that are working, the residents and the attendings, you need to make their lives easier. And so just like that, for me, I had everything set up for a lumbar puncture before the resident even got to the room. Oh, you need extra pair of gloves? I got you. I know where the storage room is and I know the code. Just already having the inner workings and predicting their their need before they have the need is a plus, like it is chef's kiss. And so just just like what you were saying, for me, I scheduled kind of my my trial run auditions towards the front end, and I made my more important ones that I really, really needed to impress at later on. So that was, for me, like November. Did you do a similar thing?
1: In a way, I did, and in a way, I didn't. At the time of scheduling, I didn't know what... Uh programs had the best reputation or not. You know, I could only base it off sort of the name of the hospital institution, which, you know, many of them were not super big names, Um, sort of look at research and look at residents. But, you know, really, you're just speculating. So it just came down to as long as I got them all in there, that was what mattered.
0: Definitely. Did you do an elective ENT right before your audition started to kind of get your feet wet again?
1: Yeah, it actually worked out. I did my um I did general surgery and then I did ENT and then I had a vacation month for boards and then I started all my auditions. So I sort of knew I wanted ENT. Did the actual rotation I think in February for ENT. And then from there did um step two, level two, back to back. I think I did it of um, June on a vacation, and then I started auditions literally the next week. Like I did level two on a Friday. I started my first audition on a Monday.
0: Oh my gosh. You were built different, Nick, built different.
1: And it was uh, it was quite miserable. Uh, I tried to emphasize on that audition, which ended up being a pretty well-known program, but I ended up telling them, it was like, hey, I literally just took level two Friday. Please be lenient with me for this first week, and uh, we'll go from there.
0: Honestly, though, you were probably in your tip-top shape after Level 2. I think I speak for every fourth year out there when I say, like, my peak intelligence was July 6th after I finished Level 2. Like, and it's just been kind of downhill since then. Um, so I got to get back on the Anki train soon. My streak has been blown for many months now. But um, you were probably in tip-top shape because I remember after my level two, I went on my way, and I was like, I got this. Like, oh, you want to know the indications for for an LP? I got you. Oh, you you want to know this? What is that for, for a thoracentesis? Like, what is that criteria? The lights criteria. <laughs> yeah. See, I knew lights criteria to a T and I don't even know the name of it now.
1: I agree 100%. The- I felt like I was at peak intelligence right there as well, but then I got in those audition rotations and uh, became a different kind of intelligence. Like The first day he handed me an audiogram, He's like, can you read this for me? You know, I had seen some on my uh, ENT rotation before dedicated board studying. I could give him the basics, but I said, listen, let me just come back to you tomorrow and I will give you a much better answer.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great way to to answer a question when you don't know the answer is like to say, I will have your answer tomorrow. I need to use that more often. I Sometimes I'll just say like, I'll get back to you, <laughs> but giving them like a definitive, like I'll be back to you tomorrow with this answer is great. And yeah, like you said, your, your intelligence just changes, right? Like I got really, really good at neuro and now I'm on my emergency rotation. And if it's not neuro, I really don't, have a whole lot of clue about what what kind of imaging to get for the abdomen. Like it's just not something that I've been exposed to for since third year basically. Um but as soon as a stroke comes through the door, I know the NIH stroke scale start to finish and I can do it right then and there. Um so it's just it's different.
1: Yeah, it's so funny. I'm on family medicine and I'm like in my notes I'm typing I'm like They have a left deviated septum, right cerumen impaction, tonsils are this
0: plus. Yeah, yeah, same. I, I'm i like teaching people how to take reflexes, showing my ER doc, like the really interesting cystic uh, granulations in uh, CT. And he's like, I don't care. I'm like, that's not why they're here. And I'm like, no, but it's interesting. Look at this. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, definitely just different. And I know that you're going to Europe soon. That's exciting. Uh, would you say that, you know, at this point in fourth year, you just got to prioritize wellness? Like, would you say that that's a a solid statement?
1: Yes, I have a very, maybe it's an unpopular belief. Uh, Somebody told me that you should just max out your loans for the spring semester because you may need it to travel, et cetera, do fun things, but you may need it also for first month's rent. Uh, down payment on a house, et cetera, for those things that come in July. Because you'll start July 1st, your first paycheck won't come until whatever, July 14th, two weeks later, Um, in which case then you have taxes and everything. So have a little bit of fun saved up. Uh, I definitely did that with my loans. Uh, And I'm using a big part of it uh, for the trip to Europe. And I would definitely maximize every bit of travel, free time you can. thought about it. I was like, I don't think I'm ever going to have two weeks off for the next five years. So...
0: Yeah, I mean, how much how much time do you usually get off in ENT residency?
1: It sort of depends. There's the time you can take off for PTO, and then there's sort of the time that you may have if your attending doesn't work. So some attendings I was with like only worked half days Friday, so you had like a bonus weekend at some places that you didn't have to take PTO off. Uh, but then there's the call schedule that you're always going to juggle.
0: I know that we like I already had to put in my my requests off, which is. Shocking. They were like, yeah, what, what three weeks do you want off? And I'm like, uh, I don't even know what I'm doing next week. Uh, so we'll see. But I, I had to put something down. So I just put random, random stuff like for, for Sebastian's graduation and stuff like that. Uh, and during his match week, because I'm a great girlfriend. But I realized after I hit submit, dude, I'm not going to have time off between July 1st and Christmas. So that's really exciting for me. I love that.
1: Yeah, one of the best things for me was uh, this year I had a audition season ended and I was beginning the um, required rotations, the three of them. So audition rotations ended um, midway through December and then the required rotation started in January. The best thing I did was I took the two weeks off for Christmas and New Year's. And the reason that was so beneficial for me was that that was when I did probably 60 to 70% of my interviews were in that two-week period that I took off. My, these last two weeks of vacation with my school in that time, I did all my interviews because if not, you have to schedule interviews um, trying to be in accordance with your school's policy so you don't miss enough days or you have to try and coordinate them so that they're after clinic or after you know whatever rotation you're on. So. Because I was able to do them on my two week vacation period, you know, I alleviated a lot of that burden and uh, was able to stay compliant with everything.
0: That's that's a great tip too. So is there anything that you don't like about ENT?
1: Uh, so i admit ENT is not the super exciting, you know, surgical specialty. You're not gonna have gunshot wounds or anything, which was one of the things I liked sort of doing the trauma surgery rotations and things, it was very exciting. And you were like on the brink of somebody's life was literally in your hands at that point. And that was like incredibly thrilling. You know, when it comes down to it, EMT, it's not quite the same thrill, but you get a different satisfaction. You know, you could take a person in for tympanoplasty, or if you're in on a cochlear implant, and you're literally giving somebody hearing back, or, you know, you have somebody, you know, with, severe sinus disease and they can't breathe or severe septum and you're literally giving them an airway again it became just the. it's not that you lost a thrill it just became a sort of different type of satisfaction
0: yeah no I could definitely see that and I mean I'm not super educated on what ENTs do I should probably see an ENT myself for allergies but um that's all that I know about ENTs, you know, like they do allergies, they do septoplasties, they do um, tonsillectomies and adenoidectomies, if that's even the right term. But like what else can they do with it? I know that you mentioned that they can do plastics. What else can they do?
1: Yeah, that was something I didn't quite grasp until the audition rotation cycle uh, where I was asking sort of some of the graduating fifth years, you know, were they going to fellowship or not? So with ENT, you know, you can go into neurotology and specialize on crazy tumors, you know, right on, you know, right off the brain inside the middle ear. And those are your mastoidectomies and kind of wild surgeries where you're drilling through the bone to get to invasive tumors. Uh, You could also do rhinology, which you get a lot of it already, but sometimes it adds for a better scope of practice. And with that, you can do specialized septoplasties, rhinoplasties, all things relating to the nose.
0: And sorry to cut you off, but being called a rhinologist would be pretty fun, too, like a a party trick. Like, oh, what do you do? I'm a rhinologist. No, I do not study rhinos. I am actually a nose ENT. Uh, So just something to keep in mind, Nick, for in case you want to do a fellowship.
1: Definitely. (laughs) And then one of the things, uh, like I said, you can also go into facial plastics. They do a lot. Uh, they'll do rhinoplasties as well, but they'll do the Botox procedures that can be big money makers for you as well. Uh, I was at a couple of places that had uh, grants to do fillers. And, and then from there, you can also apply head and neck. And so head and neck's probably one of the more intense fellowships you could apply to. Uh, it's either one or two years, depending on the research involved. But that would be all your crazy thyroid cancers, the giant goiters, the crazy neck dissections, so the more intense procedures.
0: And they even help with, um, I actually saw... The first time that I ever saw an ENT in real life was actually during an anterior cervical disc fusion uh, procedure when I was on my neurosurgery rotation. And a lot of neurosurgeons will actually bring in an ENT because they have to go through anteriorly. There's so many structures that like you can you can mess up. So you know, moving over the great vessels, making sure that you're not nicking the thyroid, stuff like that. They work in sync with a lot of other professions that I didn't even realize.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. We do. Um, it depends on the place, but yeah, we'll do the anterior approach for a lot of cervical procedures with um, with ortho or neurosurgery.
0: It's pretty cool. What resources did you use for ENT to gear up and get ready?
1: It was interesting when when you apply ENT or talk to people who applied, they will always tell you to use Pasha uh, ENT Secrets. Those are the best. You know, even attending still reference Pasha, but Keep in mind that those are more of like an index. Those are sort of a reference. So for Pasha, they'll give you a short summary on symptoms to look out for, what medications to use, what tests to order, etc. cetera. And it can be helpful. It's very helpful more as an attending. Uh, and an ANT sequence is good because they'll tell you the questions that you're, you know, most likely to get pimped on. You know, what's a normal audiogram? Or what does, you know, conductive hearing loss versus like neural? Uh, what's the difference? It'll give you like really good insight on that but I was told or more guided on the rotation that the better resources is more the Baileys and Cummings actual ENT textbooks where they'll give you the whole like say you had to do a tonsillectomy it'll give you the whole background on a tonsillectomy in a textbook format so it'll give you a lot more information so that when you go back and reference Pasha or secrets uh, you have a sort of a basic understanding and then with the OR Find a good neuro atlas. There are a lot of them out there. And then there's a source called Vulu that has, uh, it's, I think it's an African website that has a lot of basic PDFs, relevant anatomy, indications, contraindications. In and that. that saved me a lot on some of the procedures that I weren't sure about.
0: Those are some, some solid resources I have never heard of, but maybe they'll help me in neuro. Who knows? So I'll look into a couple of them. And... Did you ever have to do the Weber-Ryan test? I've just always wondered this for, for ENTs. Like, do you actually do that to figure out if it's conductive versus versus sensory neural?
1: You know, it's funny. It's like 50-50 depending on the preceptors. The older preceptors will 100% use it every time. And whether they, they use it or not, you will get pimped on it on an ENT rotation. So you need to know it uh, like the back of your hand. I saw it, you know, it has its utilities and it doesn't. I'm Like I said, I'm like, they really not even in the – I haven't started residency yet, so I can't tell you if it's the exact utility of it. But uh, the attendings I talk to, some of them like it just because it gives you an idea of if you need to order a hearing test or not. And it can guide you a little bit in that area. And if you have a differential and somebody coming in with hearing loss and you sort of think it's one or two things, it can kind of help jog you one way or the other because that might dictate what test you order. It could be an MRI of the head versus the, an audiogram. It does have some utility in that area if you're kind of 50-50.
0: I had no idea. And just for a heads up for everybody, everybody applying neuro, we do not, (laughs) I did not see it used once. And I was terrified that I was going to see it and somebody was going to ask me about it. Uh, So blessed that that never happened.
1: What's funny is you see like uh, different variations of it. Uh, Some do it traditionally, like on top of your head. Some do it right on the frontal bone. I saw somebody do it on the teeth.
0: That's so cool. Maybe I'll see it next year. Who knows? And I keep saying next year, like it's going to be 12 months from now. But um, I don't know if you do this too, but like it's in July. Like there's two months.
1: <laughs> I know. Tell and me about like- it. I applied to the all the licensing involved and I'm like, whoa.
0: So this really funny thing keeps happening to me where I'm like, yes, I finished all of the onboarding. I did my licensing. I gave them all of my tax information. I signed up through the VA. I'm done, right? Like, it's all good. And every time that I think that I'm good, another thing pops up into my inbox where, oh, you got to watch these videos now. Oh, you got to learn about this drug now. And take this quiz. Oh, sorry. It never ends, truly.
1: It is so important to have a good relationship with your coordinator. I I, I guess we can expand upon this, whether it's an audition rotation or even once you uh, have matched to a program you need to have a good relationship with your coordinator because they will make or break you sometimes yeah you know, I was with one program that the coordinator like literally had to say in some of the interviews because they do they coordinate the interviews the zoom links and everything so
0: and that's something that I if I could tell myself again look out and be on the like radar for for good and bad coordinators you know like are they on top of it do they send you an email back right away? Is there are their emails coherent and good with grammar and all of the stuff? Are they giving you the proper links because I I'm just going to say like my coordinator is amazing, 10 out of 10. Cannot say it enough, but I didn't even think to put that on my radar when I was looking at uh, residencies. Yeah,
1: you're 100% right. And there's like so many little things that you could go on for hours talking about as far as like, how to stay in contact with residents, how to, you know, send love letters, you know, more closer to a deadline, how to write a good thank you, what's include in a thank you, so many sort of important details that like, I admittedly am horrible at, but I'm so thankful my girlfriend is very good at, and so we help balance each other out a lot with that. <laughs>
0: Oh, she's almost too good at emails. The way that she words emails makes you think that like she's known people for years. And that's something that I love about her and I need to get better at. But that's that's the truth. You know, you got to send the thank you letters. You got to get out there and shoes on the ground, be thanking people, be letting them know in person how much the, the rotation means to you, express your interest the entire time. Because if you don't tell them straight up, like, I'm interested in your program and I want to be here, then they'll think that you're just another rotator, you know? Like, they don't know that you're actually interested.
1: You know, don't do not do it in, like, a fake way either.
0: Such a learning experience. And you're right. Like, I could, I could make an entire podcast episode on questions like that. Just got to come up with them. You know, it's tough out here as a podcast host. So that's why I need, like, listeners to tell me what you want. Tell me what you want
1: yeah fourth year is such a wild ride. you You don't even realize it is happening, and then all of a sudden, by the time you get everything submitted, you get done with all your interviews. It's like, where did the whole year go?
0: I know. I feel like I feel like we were just sitting in man's, like writing on the whiteboards. Like that feels like literally yesterday. And so the fact that, like we're all done. We're all going to move far away from, from one another and and literally do the thing that we wanted when we started medical school. Like, cause let's face it, everybody wants residency. That's the that's the end goal. Like we didn't all want to go to med school just to go to med school. But um, yeah, so thank you so much for listening. Feel free to reach out to me. Let me know what you want to hear about next week, who I should be interviewing next. And let me know what you thought of this episode. You can follow me on Instagram and TikTok at dear.do.pod. You can check out the official website, deardeopod.com, for blog posts, guides, and you can submit your questions about all things medical school anonymously. Support the continuation of this podcast by leaving a five-star reading and review wherever you get your podcasts. Original music by Cologne and recording and production by yours truly. Thank you so much, Nicholas Breyer, for attending this lovely meeting, and I hope to see you all here next time.